Thank you, choir, and Dr. Campbell, thank you for that really wonderful arrangement of Wesley's hymn. Good morning. I am so glad to be with you. I'm grateful for the opportunity and the honor you've given me to be with you during this season between Dr. Reason's pastorate and your next pastor. Um, I'm aware that my teachers, uh, Peter Ray Jones and Buddy Sheridan, have stood here, my predecessor, Cecil Sherman, stood here, my friends Tim Moore and Mike Queen have stood here. Wow. (laughs) I'm honored and humbled uh, by this invitation. I listened to Dr. Reason's final sermon that Jana read so beautifully and powerfully, and that refrain, in case you missed it, uh, will stay with me. What um, What a powerful ministry he had with you. Um, My friend, Glenn W. Wilcox Sr. is here this morning. He's a leader in the city of Asheville and in the First Baptist Church. He's involved with a business here that includes my great uncle Jim Linkfield's printing business. And it's really wonderful to see you, Glenn. Thank you for coming this morning. Uh, I listened to Mike's sermon from last week, and he tried to say that, you know, he was the dud to prepare the way for uh, the ministry that was to come. And that sermon was far from a dud. I've never heard him preach a dud. But when he said that, I thought about one of my wife's favorite stories. And in a minute, you'll see why it's one of her favorite stories. It's about a young preacher who got in the car with his wife to go to lunch after worship one Sunday. And he looked over at her and he said, Honey, how many truly great preachers do you think there are in the world? And she looked at him and said, one less than you're thinking now. (laughs) You can see why it's one of her favorite stories. Some children's greatest fears live underneath their beds. Their parents get up in the middle of the night, as they've done on many a weary night, go to their child's bedroom, flashlight in hand, lift the cover, shine the light on the dusty floor, and prove once again there's no boogeyman lurking in the dark. One father said to his son, there's no monster under your bed, nothing could live in that mess. Playing with this childhood fear, Shel Silverstein wrote, There are kids under my bed, cried little baby monster Fred. Mama monster, monster smiled, Oh, Fred, there's no such thing as kids, she said. Many things frighten us. The dark, heights, spiders, snakes, clowns, public speaking, commitment, intimacy, terror in the streets. Many things frighten us, and we fear fear, too. We especially fear failure. There's a tug of war in us between our desire to succeed and our anxiety about failure. Master marketer Seth Godden said, I was helping a kid learn how to ride a two-wheeler. 
he informed me that he didn't really want to learn how to ride a bike. His reasons were quite thoughtful. He doesn't live near a bike path. He doesn't really have anywhere to ride. It gets his pants dirty. None of his friends ride bikes, so on and so on, excuse after excuse. But the real problem was his own worry that he would try to ride a bike and he would fail. Some of us are more like that kid than we acknowledge. Fear of failure keeps us from even trying. We shrink back from the possibility of transformation which comes with fresh opportunities and new challenges. And because the risks intimidate us, we end up conspiring in our own diminishment. Godden goes on to say, we need to call fears bluff. If you can embrace the idea that your success and happiness are tied up in defeating the fear that's holding you back, you're 90% of the way to where you need to go. The challenge is to focus on the work, not on the fear which comes from doing the work. Our fear of failure often manifests itself, at least it has in my life, as a kind of procrastination, a common way to commit self-sabotage. We put off the things that matter. We fill our time with things that don't. And we scramble at the last minute to make up for the time we frittered away. The thief of time is the title of a collection of scholarly essays about this problem of procrastination. And one of the chapters discusses the career of the Civil War General George McClellan, who was a world-class procrastinator. He led the Army of the Potomac early in the Civil War in 1862. He had an excellent opportunity to take Richmond from Robert E. Lee. But McClellan, the article says, dilly-dallied, convinced that he was blocked by hordes of Confederate soldiers and missed his chance. But the truth was, there was not a single Confederate on the battlefield. They lived only in McClellan's vivid imagination. When he assumed control of the Union Army, command of the Union Army, McClellan had confidently told President Lincoln, I can do it all. But he ended up not doing much of anything. He constantly badgered the president for new and more powerful weapons, claimed he didn't have enough troops, and complained that the men he did have were poorly trained. He devised elaborate battle plans, refined them constantly, but hardly ever executed them. He dreamed of being a hero, but he lacked the confidence to turn his dreams into deeds. So another general, Henry Halleck, wrote about McClellan, and I hope this kind of thing never gets said about any of us. There's an immobility here that exceeds all that any man can conceive of. It requires the lever of Archimedes to move this inert mass. It was McClellan's fear of failure 
not actually any existing opposition. It was his fear of failure that immobilized him. He tried to hide it, but ultimately and ironically, he failed because he feared failing. Jesus told a parable about how fear diminishes us. A wealthy man went away on a long journey. As he was headed out of town, he divided his property among three of his servants. To one servant he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to the last he gave one talent. The difference in the amounts wasn't because the master was playing favorites. It was because he knew each servant's ability and potential. He gave them what he knew they could handle. A talent, by the way, was a huge amount of money. One talent was equal to 15 to 20 years of an average worker's term uh, wages. In our terms, roughly $750,000 per talent. The master was astonishingly, maybe even foolishly, generous. So even the fella who got the least amount of money got enough to live without anxiety for the rest of his life without ever having to earn another dime. After he entrusted his wealth to his three servants, the master went away. He went away for a long time. While he was gone, the servant who received five talents and the servant who received two talents went to work. They invested, traded, bought, and sold. They made good use of their master's venture capital. Each of them doubled the investor's money. But the servant who got one talent did nothing more than dig a hole and put his master's money in the ground. He wanted to preserve it just as he had received it. The trouble was that the master had not given his servant that money for safekeeping, for preserving. The master had given the servant that money for risking. When the master returned, he settled up with his servants. For the servants who had boldly and creatively invested his money, he had even greater rewards. Well done, well done, good and trustworthy slave, he said to each of them. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will make you master of many things. I will put you in charge of many things. And the master also freed them from their identity as slaves, as servants. He said... Enter into the joy of your master, which was a way of saying, you're now part of my family. Welcome to my family. You're like a son to me now. The third servant, the one who had received one talent, had no return on his master's investment to report. He didn't even have stories about startups which had fizzled, or deals which had gone bad, or companies which had gone bust. I think this master might have been impressed with effort and initiative, even if it had not amounted to much. But the servant had nothing 
accept the original investment to return. Not only did he fail, but did you hear how he blamed his master for his failure? Master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you didn't scatter seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here. Here you have what is yours. This master was livid. You wicked, lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I didn't sow and gather where I didn't scatter? Then you ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to all who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, it would be exactly the wrong thing to do with this parable what so many have done and turn the small-m master into a story about the capital-m Master. This is not a picture of the master who told the story. The master in this story is not a direct stand-in for Jesus. Jesus was doing what he often did. He was using his culture's stock imagery about judgment to shock his hearers into paying attention to what they were doing or not doing with their lives. Jesus' story tells us, actually tells us, that how we live depends on the kind of master we think we have. The third slave, you see, thought the master was an unethical exploiter who took unfair advantage of the labors of other people. The third slave thought he was a greedy and unscrupulous businessman, a carpetbagger, a robber baron, a Wall Street banker on the make. But that's what he feared. There's actually no evidence in the parable that this master was the kind of master the slave feared he was. None. The other two slaves didn't think so. After all, the master had handed over vast amounts of money to them. And not just while he was away on a brief vacation, but for a long time. He didn't look over their shoulders while he was gone. He left them free to do what they chose to do with the money. No quarterly statements, no annual reports. Not only that, when he got back, he rewarded the successful with a huge bonus and let them keep all the money they had earned. No evidence at all that this master was what the slave, the third slave, feared he was. As Tom Long put it, everything in this story leads us to see the master as an extraordinary man, trusting, welcoming, generous, benevolent. But the third slave 
didn't see the master he actually had, he saw a monster that his fears had created. Now, there are many of us who live with a harsh, hard, punitive God who is the creation of our fears. Maybe this tyrannical God comes from wounds we experienced at the hands of people who were supposed to love us or neglect from people who were supposed to nurture us or indifference from people who were supposed to take delight in us. Or maybe the people around us thundered about an angry God who couldn't wait to condemn every weakness and punish every mistake. But however it happened, there are people in this room. I know there are. They're in every room. There are people in this room who feel that they live with a God who is unkind, unfair, impatient, impossible to believe, impossible to please. No wonder we're afraid. Not just of this phony God we've created with our imaginations, but afraid of life itself, too. And so what we end up doing, don't we, is we hide our truest selves in the ground. We bury ourselves. We die in advance of our deaths. We surrender our gifts and our lives to the outer darkness, to an inner and present hell of regret and remorse. The psychiatrist Gerald May said in his wise book, The Awakened Heart, you can choose. You really can, by the way. You can choose primarily primarily to love God or to fear evil. Important words for us at this moment, not just in our personal lives, but in our global situation. You can choose to love God or fear evil. To seek heaven or to fear hell, if you choose the side of fear, you are likely to stifle your love by trying to make sure you never make a mistake. If you choose love, you will surely make mistakes but you will be growing and making a difference in the world around you. I would prefer a thousand mistakes, he says, in extravagant love to any paralysis in wariness or fear. Our world has way too much of fearful defensiveness and mistrust. I think we could use a healthy dose of unmitigated mistake-making love. So, friends, I invite us to trust that the real God is like Jesus. The real God is like Jesus. God knows everything about us. God knows our limits, our possibilities, our weaknesses, our strengths. God knows what hides in the shadows of our shame and what shines in the glory of our best selves. God knows it all. And the God who knows it all never rejects us, always welcomes us, unfailingly loves us. 
And because God gives us mercy for our wrongs and grace for our sins, no failure we experience is final. No falling is fatal. Since we are secure in God's sheltering love, we can be who we are. And we can do what matters most. With a God like that, we are freer than we know. We are as free as we dare to be. Amen.